Good morning to all of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As we prepare our hearts. Oh Lord, we come to you now and seek to rest and settle our hearts and to lay them before you. That Lord, you would inflate our hearts and our souls with a love for you this morning. That Lord, you would take uh, an insufficient love, an insufficient passion, and that you would build it and you would grow it and you would cause it to abound in love for you. Lord, we come to you this morning needy, constantly needy. Lord, we, we go back and forth between just full of praise and full of gratitude. A mindset, Lord, of deep joy as we think of the gospel, as we just plunge the depths of the gospel. But we also go back to the other side where we just sense the emptiness of our soul and we sense a greater need to be satisfied in you. And so to that end this morning, we come that we would find our souls just again refreshed with the relationship we have with you, that we've been reconciled to you, brought into a relationship with you. And that, Lord, our greatest yearnings and our greatest desires, which could not be met by anything in this world, have been met by you. We ask you this morning to rekindle afresh the gift of God, the greatest gift that you have filled our hearts with love for you and you have removed hatred. We ask you to again, Lord, to, to ex- expand and grow our love for you this morning, that you would open our eyes afresh to behold the precious truths of your word and that you would nourish our souls this morning, that we would stand up at the end and, Lord, be satisfied again and renewed in our inner man. We do thank you again and pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you open your Bibles with me to... Psalm 63, I want to open with a story that I've heard, and I, I looked all week trying to find where it was at, and I couldn't find the source, but I'll retell it to the best of what I remember hearing. It was a story about some, some men who were swimming, and they were swimming in caves, and one particular cave, you had to swim underwater, underneath rock, and swim down a tunnel. And then at the end, you would come up, and the cave would open up, and there you could come in there, and you could get air. And so, these three men attempted to do that very thing. The only thing was, you had one breath to get down to the end. And it was basically, unless you had scuba gear, it was basically risking your life. That your hopes was... Take a deep enough breath to get to the end of the tunnel, and then when you come up, get your air and you're able to come back. Well, the first man goes, takes his deep breath, and he, he plunges under the water, begins swimming. The other guys are waiting around, doesn't come back. So the next guy, says, you know, he's probably waiting there. So he takes a deep breath, takes in as much oxygen as he can, ducks underwater, and he swims the path. Well, the third guy's waiting around, and 
you know, he's already intimidated. He decides this probably isn't a good idea. He waits for a while. His friends doesn't, don't come back. So he goes and gets the authorities. And he goes and gets the authorities. The authorities come. And police come. Uh, scuba police with their gear. They're on. And they go uh, down this tunnel. And they come up. And they find these two men that are dead. And what had happened was these men swam. And they came out from under the water into the cave. But the cave had air in it, but it didn't have oxygen in it. So these men come out of the cave. Their lungs are burning. Their, lung, their bodies are screaming. If you guys have swam underwater for extended periods of time, try to swim back and forth as many times as you can in the pool. Your body begins burning. Your muscles, you can feel your muscles burning. You can feel your lungs burning. And then these men burst through the surface of the water, attempted to sink in this massive inhalation of fresh air only to find a vacuum. And these men, they perished that way. They perished seeking this life-giving, refreshing oxygen that would sustain them, and instead they found nothing, and they perished. Well, that's what's happening. That's what our world is doing. This world, this, this world we live in is banking their soul, they're banking their life, that what they're pursuing, that what they're holding their breath for and attempting to inhale is going to satisfy them, is going to sustain them, it's going to sustain their soul, it's going to sustain their satisfaction. They bank their soul on that, on a satisfaction in the things of this world. Well, we already know the right answer. We already know the illustration points to. We understand that as a believer, we have forsaken the false pursuit. We know that, that the unbeliever comes up out of the tunnel with, uh, with a cave that has no oxygen in it. But the believer has found his soul's satisfaction. He's found his fresh air and nothing more and nothing less than the living God. And that's what we discover this morning in Psalm 63. David's pursuit of God has yielded to him a satisfaction in his soul beyond any earthly thing. So I want to read this morning to you a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your glory, to see your power. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. I want to spend the, spend the first part of our time this morning uh, explaining this text. And then uh, the last part, seeking to uh, apply it, seeking to gain uh, for our own spiritual benefit and insight. I'll work our way this morning just through verses 1 through 8. 
save 9 through 11 for another time. 1 through 5 yields to us the pleasure in God. Verses 6 through 8, the pursuit of God. And we want to understand the context of how this psalm was written. David's soul being satisfied. You'll see that superscription of those tiny words above. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we read the Old Testament and we can surmise that there's only two times when David was in the wilderness, where David fled to the wilderness. We know, of course, the first one was when he was fleeing from Saul, who was after David's life, full of jealousy. He attempted many times to kill, crush David, and David fled to the wilderness. He fled to caves to preserve his life. And the second time where we find David in the wilderness is when he flees from his own son Absalom. In verse 9, David makes reference to himself. And then in verse 11, he refers to himself in the third person as the king. And so it's highly improbable that David would refer to himself as king if he's still, if Saul is still the king. So what we see here is David here in this psalm is when he's fleeing from his son Absalom. He's attempting to preserve his own life. I want to listen to uh, David's response here. We go through a little background of Absalom's pursuit of his father. And I want you to listen to David's words when he heard of his son's plans of a coup and to take his own father's life. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So we see Absalom's plot wasn't just simply an attempt of a coup. It wasn't just simply to, to take the kingdom from his father. But his, his pursuit here is to take the kingdom and to kill his own flesh and blood, to kill his own father. So, imagining that, picturing that, this man fleeing for his life, fleeing nonetheless from his very own son, what would you think he would write? If you were journaling, what would you write in your journal? This is what David writes. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's first response in the most dire straits, even for his own life, is hunger and thirst for God. We're mindful this morning, this psalm wasn't written at a desk. wasn't written at a table with a lamp. It wasn't written as if David was sitting at his desk and his windows wide open as he's overlooking beautiful Jerusalem and he's marveling at all that God has provided for him. But he's writing this in the wilderness as he's seeking to preserve his own life. When we were at retreat, all of us, we couldn't stop talking about the heat, right? I mean, as soon as you walk outside, you start sweating, right? Just Your body starts trying to cool itself off. Your pores open up. You're just sweating. We looked at these, this green golf course, and we, we wondered how much water does it take every day to keep this golf course green. Why? Because nothing can live in the wilderness, Nothing can live in the wilderness without water. Well, this is exactly where David finds himself. David and 
Second Samuel also tells us that there were thousands had fled with him. Thousands of people take with David and they flee to the wilderness, to this dry and worried land where there is no water. In fact, Second Samuel 17 tells us that David, his family, and all these people flew, they fled all the way to the city of Mahanaim. Now Mahanaim is directly on the other side of the Jordan. The Jordan from Jerusalem is 35 miles away. So here's David, his family, his kids, some servants, and his mighty men. And they're in the wilderness. And they, at, at the end of their hike, they've, they've covered 35 miles. That's a lot of ground. Again, we went to this picnic right at the retreat. It's blazing hot out, 108 degrees. And we're sitting in the shade. And we're sweating in the shade. Nobody's running. Everyone's just sitting there. At the most, people throw water balloons, right? But we last for two hours and everybody goes home. Why? Because it's blazing hot outside. And David here and his people have been walking for 35 miles in a blazing desert. Ill-equipped, unprepared. You know, they weren't spending two, three days preparing, stocking up water, stocking up food, but they fled into the wilderness for their very life. And yet what we find here this morning is when David finds himself in a state of emergency, when he finds his life threatened, his cry is not for God to quench his thirst, but his cry is that God would quench his soul, that God would satisfy his greatest need, and that is to be filled with satisfaction in God. David's first words are, Oh God, you are my God. Here he declares his singular possession of God because God had declared his singular possession of David. God called David a man after his own heart. God said this about David when he was just a young shepherd boy. God said this not because they both liked the same foods or sports, but because David's greatest delight was God. David's greatest delight was seeing God pleased at seeing a man after his own heart. I'll show this anyway. Sitting at lunch on Sunday uh, with Lou Priolo, Bob, and James... And Lou is talking about, what is his word, epicurial, purgatory, two two big words for me. But he's talking about how, you know, um, where he's living at in Alabama, uh, Montgomery, there's there's no good restaurants. And he's talking about all these places he's traveled over the world, and he finds these delectable goodies, and he's so happy to come to L.A. where there's everything he could ever eat. He's talking about all these strange foods. And, and then Bob pipes in. Bob starts talking about sea urchin. And he starts talking about eating these live little octopuses. And I'm like, and I look over at James. And James is kind of like, that's weird too, you know. <laughs> and Lou, look at Lou. And Lou's drooling. He's like, oh, that sounds so good. And you know, So here's these two guys, right? Bob and James, men after each other's heart. But that's what, that's what God said about David. Not because it was food. Not because it was sports, right? but because it's God. So here's a man who's drooling after God. That's a, maybe not the right thing to say. His heart is yearning and thirsting after the living God to such an extent that God looks into the very soul of a, of a shepherd boy, not into the high priests, not into all the religious gurus in Israel, but he looks into the heart of a shepherd boy and says, this man pants after me. 
His palate is what I long for. My glory displayed in the souls of men. And David says, that's what I long for. That's what I hunger for, is to have my soul satisfied in God. And God looks at this young man and says, this is a man after my own heart. So David says, God, you are my God, and I will seek you earnestly. David says he'll seek because his soul thirsts and his flesh yearns for God. Most believers, I bet majority of us have read this psalm and we can relate with it. In fact, I want to say this. I found, at the end, you can judge for yourself at the end how, how this sermon turns out, but I wrestled so much this week, even this morning, with the great difficulty of trying to unfold this. And I finally realized it not till this morning, why it's so hard. Because what we're unfolding here isn't, you know, didactic teaching, but it's emotions. It's very hard I realized this morning, too late, that it's very hard to explain emotions. We can exegete how you're supposed to think, right? We can, Romans 12, or biblical counseling, how you're supposed to think. But what we're reading in this psalm is a man's feelings, his emotions about God. And you can, you can explain it, but you can't make yourself feel this way. That's why we make this psalm, it's a prayer. We make this psalm a prayer this morning. God, let me feel this way about you as David did. We can preach, we can explain all the words, but at the end of the day, the only way I can feel this way about you, God, is if you do the work in my heart. Let me feel this way, let me have this kind of longing about you that David had. Where there's this physical response. There's a physical response to spiritual realities. And we see that throughout David's life, and we see that throughout many other saints in the Bible where there's a physical response to spiritual satisfaction or to spiritual truths. When David sinned against God and his sin against his adultery with Bathsheba and his arranged murder of Uriah, we read in Psalm 32 that David's flesh, his body, he was wasting away, physically suffering because of his sin. Likewise, we read uh, in Second Samuel, when the ark is being brought back to Jerusalem, it says that David, he's, he's jumping and he's dancing for joy. A few weeks ago when James took us through Paul's life, and we read about Paul's conversion, where Christ appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, and later on, he's in the house and he's sitting there, and the scriptures tell us, Luke tells us, that Paul sat there for three days without any food and without any water. Now you would think that's nothing, but that's something. Because you and I know that our, our normal disposition is to eat and to drink. We don't, absolutely, we don't do nothing. But Paul, he's so dumbfounded, he's so blown away by the gospel. For three days he sits and he does absolutely nothing but think and meditate and pray. Likewise, we see in this psalm this morning that love for God is not merely annexed to the soul, but as God moves our soul, even our body itself responds. David even says later on, I I lift up my hands in your name. When our soul is moved, our body responds. Tears are a physical sign of being moved. Laughter is a physical sign of being moved. I've only read a few Christian uh, autobiographies. But there's one I've read, I want to read again. 
It's called Tortured for Christ. Maybe you guys have heard it, read it uh, by Pastor Richard Vermbrand, who was a Romanian pastor under the most, you know, demoralizing, vicious communist regime that's ever existed. And this man, for his boldness for Christ, he was put in prison for 18 years. His body was tortured. He was mutilated. He suffered just horrendous things because of his love for Christ. But he talks about all these joys he experienced, even in the midst of that. This one's not so much related to that, but it's related more to um, when he was evangelizing to these communists. And he shares this story that somewhat captures this physical response to spiritual truths. He writes, the next day, the soldier that he had been sharing the gospel with came to see me. He now longed for God, but he had never seen a Bible. He had no religious education and never attended religious services. He loved God without the slightest knowledge of him. I read to him the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of Jesus. After hearing them, he danced around the room in rapturous joy, proclaiming, what a wonderful beauty. How could I live without knowing Christ? It was the first time that I saw someone so joyful in Christ. Then I made a mistake. I read to him the passion and crucifixion of Christ without having prepared him for this. He had not expected it. And when he heard how Christ was beaten, how he was crucified, and that in the end he died, he fell into an armchair and began to weep bitterly. He had believed in a Savior, and now his Savior was dead. I looked at him and was ashamed. I had called myself a Christian, a pastor, and a teacher of others, but I had never shared the sufferings of Christ as this Russian soldier now shared them. And then I read to him the story of the resurrection and watched his expression change. He had not known that his Savior arose from the tomb. When he heard this wonderful news, he beat his knees and swore, using very dirty but very holy profanity, This was his crude manner of speech. Again, he rejoiced, shouting for joy. He said, he is alive, he is alive. He danced around the room once more, overwhelmed with happiness. This vivid response to God. This vivid, moving response to the gospel, to to the soul being filled with the glorious truths of who God is. And this is what has happened to David This is what had happened to David. In verse 2, he tells us, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. The word thus there refers to David's longing after God. We could read it this way. Thus with such longing, with such longing and yearning after you, I have seen you in the sanctuary. Now here... David does what all of us do. He recollects back to previous spiritual experiences. He reckons back now in this, in this state of dryness. He's in this land. He's in dryness. In this state of this pursuit of an inflated soul, when he has a deflated soul, he thinks back to how in the past God has satisfied him and now believing that God will satisfy him again. This is how David shepherds his heart. The word seen in verse 2 reveals something profound. David says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. It's not the normal word, Hebrew word for seeing. The normal word for seeing is used um, in that same verse in the second time. 
to see your power and your glory. But the word see here is used only 50 times. And it refers to, in the Psalms, to a, a realm of pure spiritual understanding. For example, we read in 1 Samuel, where it speaks of how God had been withholding his visions from his prophets. He'd been withholding himself from his people. His people were not seeing God. It says in 1 Samuel 3.1 that uh, God had been withholding himself from displaying his glory to the nation of Israel. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, it talks about how God revealed himself to Samuel. And it's that same idea here. That God revealed himself to Samuel. And then it says something profound in 1 Samuel 3.21. It says that he revealed himself to Samuel how? By the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. This is the means by which God revealed himself to us. This is the means by which God revealed himself to David. By the word of the Lord. When David says, I'm, I'm in a sanctuary and I saw your glory... He's not speaking as if somehow he saw this appearance of God before him. But he saw God the same way that you and I see God today. He saw God in such a way that as the word was was read, as the scriptures were read, as the priest expounded on the Torah, that he, he was able to see God. He was able to see the glory, the power, and the majesty of God. And he says, now in the desert, I long for that. I long to see God in the Word. I long to see the glory of God as He's expounded and explained to me through the Scriptures. This is how you and I see God. We see Him in the Word and as we believe and as the Spirit of God works in our soul and works in our life, we can say, I've seen God. I have seen God and I want to see more of Him. That's why Paul prays, I pray that, you, God, you would open their eyes. Open their eyes that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Because we see with these spiritual eyes. This is why David was able to say, because of what he had seen of God, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Now here we get into more of David's response. And instead of just teaching through it, I want to, I want to jump right in now just to the relevance of this psalm. Relevance of Psalm 63 for, for you. Again, we can sum up verses 1 through 5 as pleasure in God. And verses 6 through 8, as a pursuit of God. What simple truth can we learn from this man who so longed for God, even when his body was perishing? David's pursuit to quench his thirst was not in a false cistern, but in the living God. It was not in a false cistern, it wasn't in a temporal cistern, it wasn't in a cracked cistern, but it was in the living God. God's warning to us against looking for satisfaction in anything other than Him is not simply because He is offended by our pursuit of pleasure outside of Him. God's warning against us seeking our greatest pleasure outside of Him is a safety net. 
It's a warning not to waste your life in vain pursuits. Right? This is what God pronounced to, to uh, Judah in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. I'll read this to you. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Katim and see, and send to Kedar, and observe closely, and see if there has not been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God says he's appalled at two things. He's appalled first that they would reject him. And he's appalled, secondly, that they would seek satisfaction in something that cannot satisfy. And so God's pronouncement of judgment upon Judah did not only arise from his jealousy as if he would somehow find greater pleasure in something other than him, but his judgment even was in itself as they pursued those things. We read that in Romans 1, where God gives them over and all of the debauchery that flows out of their pursuit of idolatry and their pursuit of sexual immorality. Where we read in such a way that, that Paul says their very pursuit of those things is God's judgment. And so God is saying here as well, your very pursuit of finding something other than I is judgment. Because you're going to take a deep breath, you're going to take a deep drink, and you're going to drink in a cauldron of poison, you're going to inhale a vacuum. Finding lasting satisfaction outside of God is likened to staring at an empty cistern and pretending you're drinking water from it. It's like swimming towards a cavern, expecting to find fresh air when there is no oxygen. And so God cries out, Seek satisfaction in me. Seek your pleasure in me. Why? Because there's none better. You know, God, this is, maybe sounds elementary, but, you know, God, he's not like an ugly husband. He's not like an unattractive husband who's sitting at home worried that his wife is going to find a more attractive man. That's not how it works. On the contrary, God is explaining that because he is the glory of Israel, because he is the greatest thing that he can offer himself, sustaining our souls, meeting our deepest longings. He's saying, why would you foolishly pursue satisfaction in something that is far less, far less able to satisfy? So God's commands are for us to forsake our idols. His, it's commands to forsake our idols, and it's also loving advice to us. God is not simply against us finding some greater pleasure in something outside of Him. He is proclaiming that it is impossible for us to find some greater pleasure outside of Him. Just as if God could be outdone in power and in wisdom and in holiness, He would no longer be God. If there was some object that were able to provide for us a greater pleasure and satisfaction, God would cease to be God. And so God says, don't Trade the satisfaction that you have and can find in God for a broken cistern that's leaking and that's draining of all spiritual sustenance. And so David 
tells us from his own prayer that what you find your greatest satisfaction in is what you praise. What you find your greatest satisfaction in is what you praise. Think of it this way. When you, when you, what you recommend, what you recommend to somebody else is based on the satisfaction that you've received from that object. You go see a movie and it's, it's a bomb. And someone says, you know what, I'm going to go see this movie. What do you say? You tell them, you know what, it's lame. Don't go see it. It's a waste of time. There's no entertainment gratification in it. Nothing that when you're at the end of two hours, you're going to walk out and say, well, I was $10 worth, worth spending. Food, right? We can go through many illustrations. You know, personally, if I eat a live baby octopus, I'm probably not going to recommend it to you, right? But if I come back after three weeks in Kazakhstan and I come home and my wife has made lasagna for me, I'll tell you what, I'll recommend it to you. And even if it's not been three weeks, I'll recommend it to you. Why? Because when you long for something, when you find satisfaction in something, you're going to recommend that to other people. You're going to recommend what you find your soul's satisfaction in. What is your greatest joy, what is your greatest longing, that which you have found your greatest satisfaction in, is that which you will recommend to other people. So the gospel for us, the gospel is not passing on information. The gospel for us, the proclamation of God, is a proclamation that we have found the greatest delight that is known to man, that is offered to anybody. We're not offering just a set of information and a set of duties. But when we we offer the gospel, we're offering what we have received and what we have found the most satisfying thing in the world. There is no greater satisfaction than in God. So So David says, because of this satisfaction I have found, my lips will praise God. I will lift up my hands. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Now, when Lydia was born, when you're preaching, you know, sometimes you realize an illustration isn't maybe what it should be, but I'm gonna, I'll share it anyway. Okay. When Lydia was born, the Hans bought her a little blankie, okay? They bought her this four foot by four foot pink and white knit blankie, right? And this quickly became Lydia's chief possession, right? She loved blank. She names it. She calls it blank. She still calls it blanky. And she has this blanky as her favorite possession. When she was six months old, it was her greatest delight. Right? And she was crying and screaming. All you had to do was give her blanky, and immediately she would stop. She would she would take blanky. She would grab it to her face. She would just put her face in it, and she would roll around on the ground in it. And she just she loves blanky. Right? She would, she still does this, okay? She runs around the house screaming, blanky, blanky. She's carrying blanky around. She's swinging it. She's talking about blanky, blanky. She, she still does this too. She, she wakes up in the morning. She gets out of her bed and she runs into our room screaming, blanky, blanky. And then she puts it under my pillow as if I love blanky as much as she does. She finds so much joy in blanky that she wants everybody to experience the joy that she has in blanky. There are times when Amy will be sad. We'll be sitting on the couch, maybe, you know, maybe I, did something stupid and hurt my wife. And Lydia, she, being the sensitive soul she is, she'll run and get blankie and she'll come to mom and say, Mommy, look, here, blankie. She offers blankie as if it's this soul-satisfying, soothing balm, right? Well, I understand, you know, as strong as it might be, I've named this blankieolatry, okay? She is a full-fledged blankieolatrist. 
Now, after, after an amount of time, what happened to Blanky is that it started unraveling. <laughs> Literally, just started coming apart at the seams. Amy would, she would stitch it up, she would tie it back together, but didn't work. And, you know, once you're a parent, you understand, like, you've got to wash Blanky every week. Because <laughs> things happen to Blanky that you have to wash it. So you start washing this Blanky, pretty soon, like, she, she's got to cut parts of it off. She's trying to stitch it back together, sew it up. Blanky went from being four feet to four feet. Blanky is at this very moment eight inches by eight inches. And she still loves Blanky the same amount, okay? Right? Now, there's hardly anything left to Blanky. And, you know, we're going to get to the point where we're going to have to throw Blanky away. And she's going to lose her greatest joy. Now, I'm hoping someday maybe she'll just grow out of it. She'll just toss out herself. But you know what? You know what's going to happen is she's just going to find something else. Because the reality is, you know what? All of us have a blankie too. Every single one of us, we have this blankie. We have our chief earthly joys that compete in our soul's satisfaction for God. We run to this blankie and we're so convinced that a mere earthly possession will satisfy our soul. And that's the deception. I watch Lydia with blankie and it's humorous to me at times. And I'm tempted to toss it away to keep my daughter from idolizing this blanket, but she's only three. And I pray that God will grow her out of her blanky lust, but it's going to turn into something else. It's going to turn into something else. And friends, that, that's exactly the same it is for us. We're wise enough to know that a blanky will not satisfy us, but we're fool enough, foolish enough to think that other things will. We have the same base pursuits as a three-year-old. We pursue these earthly things and we, we tout them off to others. Look at this. That's what the world is doing. Look at this. You can find satisfaction in this. And if our eyes are opened, we'll look at that object and see that's about as futile as finding deep satisfaction in a blanket. Because nothing can satisfy the soul as God can. When Lydia is 15 years old and she's still running to Blanky for comfort and affection, you know, we'll think she's nuts. But what are you running to? What is your comfort? What is your satisfaction? We see the test here. Let me show you. This is why this is so intense. In David's dire straits of his life, he runs to God. His life is on the line. And he hungers and thirsts for God. What do you do when you get dumped? What do you do when you get fired? What do you do when you had a bad day? David runs to God when his life is on the line. But what do you do when you just have a bad day? Do you run to God? Let alone when your life is at the end of its rope. David is unfolding to us his emotions. He's unfolding to us his heart. And it's in the scriptures to draw us in. We take this psalm as our own because we want to find a fattened soul in God as David did. We want to shrug off our miniature idols. We want to shrug off the things that we're pursuing in. We want to escape a cave that has no air in it. We want to turn around and go back to the surface and come out of the water and inhale a life-giving breath of God. Refreshment and joy in the light in God. 
God has made us with the capacity to experience infinite pleasure. Every man knows about pleasure. Right? People will be born blind. People will be born deaf. People will be born paralyzed. But every human creature, he knows about pleasure. God has made people so they know how to feel and that they know how to experience satisfaction. And he has made men in such a way that they're able to partake of the things of the world and draw forth the appropriate satisfaction from those things. So you get a new car and there's a a right way to experience pleasure from getting a new car. There's a right way to experience pleasure from eating your favorite food. There's a right way to expect satisfaction and pleasure from your spouse. But there's a wrong way as well. There's a way which the sinful hearts of men pursue temporal objects with the goal of finding eternal satisfaction. Now, we don't think that way. People don't sit down at a a temporal object and write out a philosophy of satisfaction. And they don't plan out their pursuit and say, I am going to pursue this amount of satisfaction in this particular object. But the sinful hearts and minds of men are so bent and corrupted that that's how they pursue the world. They pursue finite objects with a passion as if it had infinite pleasure. And what happens is, they come out into the cave and there's no satisfaction. There's no oxygen. I grew up in Washington, you guys know this. And one of my favorite places to go when I was in high school with my friends was a place called Molten Falls. Molten Falls, I guarantee you, I'll take every single one of you there and you would love it. It's this park. It's like 15 miles. It's out, into the, it's out in the forest. And at Molten Falls, you come down, there's this, there's this river. And there's cliffs, 15, 30, 40-foot cliffs. There's a waterfall. And you can jump off this waterfall into the water. There's a 65-foot bridge. And you, you jump the bridge. It's illegal. You get a ticket if the police catch you, but you can do it anyway, right? You, we jumped this bridge in high school. If you, if you jump off the railing, then you can boast to your friends that you jumped off 70 feet. And the water by the bridge is so clear. You can look deep down. You can't see the bottom because it keeps going, but you can see like 30 feet. You can see the rocks just plummeting after it hits the water line. You can see the rocks shooting down by the side. and You stand up there and see the beauty. If you walk over by the waterfall, you know, it's about 100 feet away. You walk over the waterfall where the water plummets over the side. And at the bottom where the water is, it's all stirred up. And you can't see the bottom. Now, people are jumping off there. They're diving. But you have to know where the rocks are. Because, if you, because you can't see the bottom. If you don't know where the rocks are, if you haven't experienced, if you haven't spent a lot of time swimming and, and marking in your mind where the rocks are, you get in serious trouble. Well, one of my brother's classmates, junior in high school, brother and his friends go up there, and this young guy goes down by the waterfall, and he dives off. He dives headfirst into the water, and he hit the rock, and he broke his neck, and he's paralyzed. Because why? Because he he plummeted into shallow water. He ruined the rest of his earthly life. In that sense. But that's what people are doing. 
They're jumping off these cliffs. They're jumping off bridges. They're jumping off waterfalls 30, 40, 50 feet in the air into two, three feet of water. And they're shattering their lives. Why? Because you cannot find infinite satisfaction in, in a temporal object. And David is screaming out his own delight that he has jumped the bridge and he has jumped into the endless depths of the soul's satisfaction in God. My soul is satisfied. I, I can't touch the bottom. I just keep going. As I read the scriptures, and at times my heart's hard, but I cry out, God, show me your glory. Unfold the depths of delight and satisfaction that is found in you. So David beckons us to jump into the depths of God. To jump into the, the depths of soul satisfaction. That's emotions. That's why it's hard to explain. The best I can do this morning is to explain from verses 6 through 8 that there is at least some means to, to find this joy. And that's, David gives that in verses 6 through 8. How did he experience this? How did he find this? Verses 6 through 8 summarize the pursuit of God. In verses 6 through 8, you want to mark the words remember, meditate, and cling. Those are the actions that David performed in the midst of the wilderness. Now, I believe that verse 1, David is unfolding. We're seeing this chronological psalm being unfolded. David's unfolding his desires, his yearning, his, dry, his soul's dry, but he's yearning to find satisfaction in God. In verse 2, he reminds himself of his previous satisfaction. He reminds himself of the deep satisfaction he's found in God. And verse 6 is now his pursuit in remembrance and of attaining that satisfaction that he has previously had and knows he will then again experience while he's in the wilderness. Now, a lot of things happen in the wilderness in Scripture. The wilderness is always where you're not supposed to be and where you're not supposed to go. You don't want to live in the wilderness because life cannot be sustained there. But God had this habit of taking his people and leading them into the wilderness, leading them into places where man cannot be sustained. And God would then use these physical situations to produce in his people a spiritual need. It's physical and spiritual. Yes, he would take his people on there. They would cry out for water. God would satisfy them. But what was God trying to teach his people all the time? That man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So God was teaching his people that the physical is always to point to us to the spiritual. Physical trials, physical sufferings, God ordains to produce in us a yearning and a longing for the spiritual. He uses the physical things and sometimes takes them away and sometimes never gives them back so that it would produce in us a longing for that which will never and can never perish and fade away. So God takes his people into the wilderness. He takes us into the wilderness to produce in us a thirst which cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. Church, that's what God does to us. He leads us into the wilderness 
He allows our souls to be parched with thirst. He graciously allows us to fill the empty result of pursuing the things of the world so that we might learn to cry out for water, so that we might come to this word and cry out for water, so we'd come to the scriptures and plead for it to be struck, that water might come forth. And so David, he strikes the rock. He strikes the rock. I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the night watches. I cling to you. This God whom he'd seen in the sanctuary, this God who was unfolded in the scriptures, he now remembers in his heart, in his soul, in his mind, and he thinks about God. And this is where I think discipline and delight collide. This is where discipline and delight, they kiss. David talks about his meditations, how he has to think about God and the Scriptures, and then his satisfaction is found. Sanctification is the process of being led by truth and not by lies. Our emotions have been... Because of the fall, our emotions precede our thinking. Our emotions, and we learned that this weekend, our emotions by sinful habit precede our thinking. We're led by our feelings, which then informs our thinking. But we're mindful that our feelings must be informed, as David tells us here, by our thinking. So David's pursuit of this satisfaction was not in a charismatic, chaotic way of just trying to falsely jump up and down and pretend that he had feelings. That's what a lot of people do. Come to church, they feel empty, they feel deflated. You know, I used to struggle with this a lot. I I at times still struggle with this. But as a young man, I would say this is one of my greatest struggles. As a young man, you know, reading the Psalms, reading about, you know, Jim Elliott, reading about David Brainerd, and listening to these men's emotions for God. And I would read that, and my response would be depressed. I would, I would get deflated rather than inflated. Why? Because I'd read these men, and I would think, I don't have feelings like that. And I would go around, and I would think, I wish I had this kind of emotion. And I would struggle that way. Even in ministry, I would, I would go to church on Sundays, and I would feel like this depression. Why? Because I didn't feel anything for God. I would go to church on Sundays, and I, we would sing these songs, and I didn't feel anything. Why? Because I was simply living my postmodern world to be led by my emotions rather than being led by truth. The believer, as we learned a couple weeks ago, is first and foremost a thinker. It is his, as his thinking informs his heart that he then responds in affections and feelings for God. So David says, I'm deflated. I don't feel like I should. But I think about God. I do the the hard work of meditation. I do the hard work of disciplining my mind to think about God. And then, and only then, will my soul be inflated with the truths that will then inform my soul, inform my emotions, which will then allow me to respond to these truths and the praise and affection that I want to experience and the praise and affection that God deserves. David puts forth this principle in meditation. He sets his mind on God, thinking about him, thinking about truths, about his word, about his character. And so we see from David that delight comes from discipline. Joy comes after you. Seek after something with all your heart and mind. As we meditate upon God, meditating on these truths, praying, God, open my eyes. 
know, that's the difficulty of the preacher. He wants to, and he should, he must, but he wants to, you know, find almost some spiritual secret. I mean, individually you do this. We want to come to the Bible or we want to live the Christian life as if they're looking for some spiritual secret that's going to unlock the key to having this kind of heart. Have you guys sensed that temptation? Maybe it's just me. There's this temptation to hope that there's some lucky charm, that there's some open sesame to the Christian life that will unlock the keys to feeling the way that David felt, to feeling the way that Paul felt. But it's not a secret. It's a secret as much as it's in the Word of God. It's in our emotions tied to our right thinking and our right doctrine, which will lead to this kind of life. Church, no one has a better opportunity to show that God is of infinite value far beyond all earthly things than we do this morning in this location where we live. It's easy to want to go to heaven right before a massive speech or a giant exam. It's easy to want to go to heaven when life is difficult and you're poor and destitute. But it's hard. It's hard to want to be with God. It's hard to want to go to God. It's hard to find our soul satisfaction when there's so many other things that can temporarily satisfy us. That's what we're fighting against. It's hard to have a heart that yearns for God when you live in one of the richest places on earth. Yet, at the same time, we as Cornerstone Bible Church have a unique privilege of being able to chuck off the shackles of this material world and find deep joy in God alone. Few have greater to lose and therefore few have more to gain. Few have, few in this church, few in this area have more to lose. We have houses to lose. We have possessions. We have cars. We have money. We have bank accounts. We have all these things to lose. And it's because we have so much to lose that we have so much to gain. We have more today than anyone before us. And not only do we have more, but we feel more. We feel the grasp of greed upon our own hearts more than others have felt. We feel the lust for more objects and more material things, perhaps more than others before us. Our entire society is built around this pursuit, but it is in this parched land where we are dry and weary that our thirst can become greater and the power of God to quench our parched soul becomes even more pleasing. We have the opportunity to master the flesh in one of the greatest spiritual deserts on the face of the earth. We have the opportunity to find pleasure in God amid a thousand other pleasures. But we must strive not to live for gold, but to live for God. We must strive in this application not to live for gold, but to live for God. I thought about this a few weeks ago. why Why are the streets in heaven made of gold? You know, you're not going to see, when we get to heaven, you're not going to see some guy run out screaming, the streets are made of gold. The streets are made, and he's not going to run out with a pickaxe and he's going to start picking away at the streets and he's going to start filling his pockets with gold. You'll be in heaven, you'd look at that and say, he's a madman. Why? Because gold is so useless in heaven, they use it to pave streets. Why? Because the gold is God. We want to be in heaven, not because the streets are made of gold, not because the seas are made of crystal, but because God is there. 
Because the Christian, even though he fights in the flesh here, he knows that God satisfies his soul and he wants to go to heaven because God is there. And so in this life now, we must believe that. The streets are made of our earthly possessions. They're ground up. God takes this gold and he he grinds it up and he paves roads with it. We're going to be chucking our possessions on the road with this divine steamroller plowing over them, forcing them into the pavement. And so we look at those things and we enjoy them according to the amount of pleasure that's, that's wisely to be sought in them. We look at our possessions today and say, I should pursue this and find the joy only according to the amount of satisfaction God has ordained for it to, to be found in it. So I urge you this morning, look at your possessions. Look at the things that you're pursuing. Look at the things you're diving into. And find out how deep is it? How deep is it? But how much, how, how far, how deep are you trying to go? This is not a, this is not a, a sermon to take your possessions and throw them literally in the dumpster. But it's to take your possessions and evaluate how much satisfaction you're pursuing. And then to come to the endless cistern. And seek to find your soul's satisfaction in God. There are two kinds of people in this room this morning. There are those who have found satisfaction in God and who need a reminder of the refreshment that has had in Him. Those who have been inhaling maybe some sand and who are ready for the fresh, life-giving air of the Gospel. And then there are those who are swimming this tunnel towards a cave with no oxygen. The gospel beckons you to come to Jesus and find your satisfaction in Him. Peter declared this in Acts 3.19. He said, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word, that Greek word refreshing means recovery of breath. Cast off your worldly pursuits. Cast off. Don't jump the 70-foot cliff into the five feet of water. But jump off the cliff into the infinite depths of God and that you might find times of refreshing that will come from the presence of the Lord. We pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the word. Pray this morning and ask this morning that you would help us to see that you have ordained all things for our good and for our joy. Everything created by you is good. But not everything that you have created is the same satisfaction. Father, you have ordained for us to find our greatest satisfaction and pleasure in you. And so simply pray that now, that in response to what David experienced, that, Lord, we might have that sort of same satisfaction and joy and delight in you as he experienced. Lord, David had a whole kingdom, and yet he was able to say no to it, to find a satisfaction in you. How much more, Lord, should we say no to our miniature kingdoms, to our miniature treasures, that we might find infinite satisfaction in you? Help us, Lord, to dive deep into the pursuit of you and to come up 
Lord, for the life-giving air that is found in, in knowing you. We thank you again in your name we pray. Amen.